Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Hey, this is Adam from the CRE Podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded a while ago. So it's a little bit dated. It's one of the conferences in 2023. It was released in video format at the time for anybody that wanted to watch Aaron and I speak in person. But this, of course, will be the, you know, the podcast platform. So we are going to release all the content now. It is good stuff. Some of the references might not jibe contextually with the current market. Keep that in mind when you're listening to it. And I guess the other big takeaway message is for 2024, we've invested into a podcast producer and you're going to see episodes that are released very shortly after recording and you'll probably see a little more social media going on. So look forward to it. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik sitting here with Aaron Cameron at day one of the Toronto Real Estate Forum. This is also part of our speaker video series with the Real Estate Forums. And I thank our sponsors, Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties and Turner and Townsend. Uh, we have a returning guest, Amy Price, President BGO. Her last appearance though was a virtual one as was everything at the time. It was in the heart of uh, first year of COVID, it would have reported probably in, uh, October. So, uh, nice to meet her face to face, vastly improved experience over, uh, virtual. Um, and yeah, probably a, a probably a more cheerful conversation today. There was a lot of negativity at the time. So Amy, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Aaron, for having me back. And thank you for being here in person. I definitely agree. It's a better experience. I think we spoke last, you were located down in the U S still am. Okay. So you came to visit us. Um, Amy's previous appearance is available in the show notes if you want to check out the the long-form version of her background. We're going to do the short-form version today, just kind of set the stage of uh, her presidency with BGO. But can you just the, the, the short-form version of, uh, of your background before we jump into it? Yeah, sure. I really just happened into the real estate investment management business out of college. I lucked into it, met some good people along the way. So I spent the first basically 19 years of my career at Morgan Stanley on the real estate investing side of the business. And I've made one real career change in my life, which was leaving Morgan Stanley and joining what was Bentall Kennedy at the time. And that has now become BGO and that's where we are today. So my background is really on the transactional execution side. My focus has been really on the U.S. markets and then North America more broadly. And I've been with BGO now for 11 years. How long as president? Well, that is a good question. We can pull up your LinkedIn real quick and check if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you check? Can you fact check me on this one? Because I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> but a few years. Since the merger, three or four. Yeah. There we go. Well, I guess probably worth mentioning too, because we are at the forum. Amy is co-host of the forum. The only two-day event, I think, on the calendar. So it doubles up her responsibilities over the uh, the two days. Which is the only reason she said yes to this. She felt obligated as co-host. <laughs> I did, actually, yeah. I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take it. So let's get into it. So three years ago, we've had you on. Um, maybe just, if you can, to kind of summarize what the BGO evolution has been over that time frame. BGO has actually grown a lot and evolved a lot in that time frame. So when I was on three years ago, we were probably a year into being BGO. And obviously we'd had that COVID disruption early on. So I'd say we've really settled into to being BGO. And what that means is that one, you know, we really are a global business today. We are diversified across the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Asia. 
And we also have debt and equity strategies. We have core strategies, value-add strategies. So we're far more diversified in the type of solutions that we're offering our investors and our clients. And I would say, kind of looking back at the last few years, thank goodness that we are, because, you know, we're in a market right now that is certainly more favorable toward certain strategies and opportunities and pretty challenging in others. So having that diversification on so many levels definitely helps us as a global business. For those that don't know, maybe just describe, you know, BGO's, as Ben told Kennedy, but just a quick history, capital sources, you know, what you do and, and the size and scope today. So we manage over 80 billion of assets globally, about half of that assets under management in the U.S., 20% in Europe, 20% in Canada and 10% in Asia. Our investors are primarily institutional. We might want to talk about, you know, one of the focuses for us going forward, and we're very much in the early stages, is building some relationships and platforms to access retail capital. But really, our business today is an institutional business. We have a lot of global pension plans and investors who we're honored to have as, as investors in multiple strategies across our business. Privately owned? We own 51% by Sun Life. So again, nice reason to come to Toronto. <laughs> so we have uh, we have the backing of Sun Life, which is very important. And part of that is capital to help us grow our business and launch new products. So that has been definitely a driver of our growth over the last few years. And then the other 49% essentially is owned by management. I want to reference the, the previous episode before we get into more. This would have been fall 2020. Everybody is terrified. And... You were busy buying a hotel and of course hotels then occupancy was single digit, I'm sure in uh, some of them and it would have seemed like a, well, we'll call it a bold strategy at the time, but now looking back, it looks very, very smart because of course hotels have just been on a hockey stick ever, ever since. So can you tell us about that particular bold strategy and <laughs> how it paid off? Yeah, well, I, and, and actually on that one, I happily will. I do remember that it was we bought a hotel in Nashville and at the time probably what I'd said or what was interesting at the time was not just the point in the cycle in which we were buying it but it was actually the first asset that we bought post-COVID that we did like virtual diligence on and we had like a security guard with an iPad kind of walking around showing us the mechanical system or something like that so it was definitely a risky bet um, and a conviction play but really felt like we would, in three to five years, have that path to recovery. And honestly, we got there sooner than we would have predicted. So Nashville, it reopened. Occupancy did come back. People wanted to travel. We were able to catch that tailwind. And we actually sold the asset probably about a year later. And we made a lot of money. That's the happy ending. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's um, not a life coast strategy you typically see deployed. No, and you know, and I mean, in hindsight, I wish we could have done 10 of those, but it was pretty one-off and, you know, we don't do a lot of hotels and it was also just a unique set of circumstances at the time. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, especially the Southern U.S. opened up a lot quicker than Canada, you know, we'll call it. So you would have seen that occupancy rise very quickly. Here, you still be waiting. And the other thing we talked about in our previous conversation uh, was rapid compression of industrial cap rates during that, that time frame. Of course, money went to near zero or debt went to near zero, which helped quite a bit and industrial valuations shot up. We're now decompressing those, those same cap rates. <laughs> so what's your view on how dramatic the decompression is versus our previous talk about how uh, rapid the compression was? Well, and that's a different story. So I guess what I'd say is, I, I think probably when we were having this conversation a few years ago, I think what I would have said and what we would have been talking about is just 
you know, are we at a point of over compressing our cap rates and over expecting growth? Is it just, you know, there was just a tremendous amount of capital that wanted to own industrial. And I actually think that one of the biggest drivers of cap rates aren't necessarily interest rates. It's really liquidity, right? The more liquidity there is in the market, you know, the more people have to pay up. It's pretty simple. Uh, and I think since then, what I'd say is we've probably in the last three years, we have probably given back half of that outsized appreciation, which is probably healthy. You know, it really wasn't based on fundamentals as much as it was based on capital flows, again, and liquidity. I think in the last six months or say a couple quarters, we've really seen transaction activity come through in the U.S. at least to a point where you have some market data and you are seeing cap rates for both what people are buying at today and an expected kind of mark-to-market cap rate, which is probably more meaningful, and an expected growth rate really all, you know, come down. So what I'd say we're seeing is that those fundamental metrics like a discount rate or a cap rate expectation are probably, they've gotten worse by 20%. Um, there's been some some income growth to offset some of that. So maybe values in total have come down 15, you know, but that's off of a, a peak that was probably 30% more than it necessarily should have been. So I do think there's still room for some downward pressure. And I think we'll see that as we really start to bring liquidity back into the market in a meaningful way, which really hasn't happened yet. You mentioned the U.S. Are you seeing that same trend in Canada? I think we will see a similar trend on a more muted basis. Why do you think that is? Primarily because Canada doesn't have as much volatility around capital flows and liquidity than the U.S. market. That being said, I do think it's interesting to consider how Canada is going to fare in this, you know, as we see how this cycle really plays out, both in terms of what the bottom feels like and then how it comes out of that. If you look back at the global financial crisis, Canada really never missed a beat. No, there was a pause. That was it. Was a pause. That's a good way to say it. And really, if you look back, why? I mean, it's because of the ownership and it's because of the banking system and the liquidity. You're welcome. Yes, thank you. Yeah, well, congratulations, you know. But I don't, you know, I won't, I I do think, again, relative to the U.S. and other markets, Canada is relatively well positioned, but I do think there will be more cracks in the system this time around. Than the GFC. That's a culturally tough thing for for Canadians. You know, I, I hear comments in Canada frequently that why do borrowers provide recourse? Well, because recourse never gets called, right? And no one would ever default on a loan in Canada because then you won't do business in Canada again. And these kind of long-held beliefs. And again, generally speaking, I understand where that comes from. There's a lot of truth in it. But, you know, you look at what's happening today already, and there are examples of those situations occurring. How many uh, major developers, players in the marketplace have gone into receivership in the U.S. in the last 18 months? I, I don't know. You, I'm not expecting to know the actual answer, but is it six, a hundred? Because in Canada, I think it's three. Like it literally is three, right? So far. Deals like or or the developers, the no, entities, like developers themselves, yeah, known entities. I, I'm not talking the smaller guys, but the major headline guys. There's three, right? And and I don't even need to name them, but they're like that's over 12 months. There's been three. And I think that's shocking to a lot of Canadians. And I think what you're, I'm trying to interpret what you're saying is that I think there's more to come, probably. Uh, I, I think a little bit more, but just the point that that's shocking is that I mean you're making my point. I agree, right? It has been very uncomfortable. In the U.S., we're a little more used to it, right? And it is a more volatile market, and, and that's part of our experience, and it's part of our, you know, it's part of what our future will be. 
I don't know the answer to your question, honestly, as to how many kind of receiverships there's been. It doesn't even make headline news, probably. It's not. Yeah, exactly. The Globe and Mail is putting it on the front page, right? Right. I mean, we barely, barely hits the news when a bank goes into receivership, let alone a real estate developer, you know? Just part of the daily news, right? Oh, yeah. Well, in America, it's kind of stand up, brush yourself off and get going again, you know? Exactly. Well, I mean, maybe just to hammer this home, recently, or maybe not that recently, but Brookfield walked away from an asset down in the U.S. And up here, people are going, oh, my God, Brookfield's failing. And it, obviously, that was not the case. It's just in the U.S., it's a totally different environment. It really is. And again, part of it is capital structure, right? When you have a kind of an investment manager with a fiduciary obligation to the equity, you know, you got to make the best decision in the present, preserve that equity capital, right? And it's not to say that that's not true in Canada. I just think you have a different ability with different sources of capital to think longer term and to, you know, kind of invest into an asset that you believe is going to have a long-term value. But the duration question is very different in the U.S. And if you're really thinking about, you know, what's right for the asset for the next short period of time versus longer period of time, it can lead you to two very different rational conclusions. And in the U.S., you see more of those decisions getting made because of where we are, you know, more near term. And no recourse. And no recourse, exactly. So is recourse in Canada part of the cracks you see in the system that you're going to pull in a web of properties if somebody collapses rather than individual assets? Or what? Like, what's the, the rationale behind the cracks in the system? Well, I think the cracks in the system are that, you know, one, that there are, you know, there are defaults on assets that are happening. And again, obviously office being the place where you're seeing it first. I would guess that most of what we will see will be in office. It's certainly more distressed. And I think the other challenge with office is that it's hard to look forward and know the future, right? And so if you're on either side of that table, you're the borrower, you're the lender, everyone's trying to figure out, you know, who's going to put in the next dollar, how, are, how do we move it forward? So it's very challenging. Um, so I think the cracks in the system are more the borrowers having to say, I can't make the investment going forward kind of taking a different view and whether that's because of recourse or not, or, or with or without recourse. Um, but I do think we're going to see recourse stepping in. I mean, banks are going to have to rely on that and they haven't done that before. Yeah. I mean, we as lenders have talked about that. It, it, yeah. Recourse gets taken all the time and so rarely comes into play. You mentioned liquidity as one of the drivers for valuation that we saw kind of at the end of the last cycle. And I imagine you're sitting on a whole bunch of quote unquote dry powder, you know, tons of liquidity, like many of your peers are. This is not a liquidity crisis. I mean, some people have you know, survived to 25 has been a thing that's been going around. I, I'm already getting sick of it, but also people remind everyone that there was a survive to 95 at the same time, right? And there was no liquidity back then. That was the, the problem. It was liquidity crisis. That is not the same now. As you sit where you are with your scope, how does that impact what's going to transpire as we survive through to 2025? I will redirect a little bit. I mean, there's not a liquidity crisis. I agree with you on that. But the more nuanced perspective I'd share is that there is a liquidity crisis for certain types of assets and strategies, right? There's absolutely a liquidity crisis for office. There's no liquidity for office right now, right? I'd argue there's kind of a liquidity crisis for core real estate. No one wants to invest into core right now. They're waiting for values to hit the bottom, so to speak, and that will change. So there's a little bit of a disconnect between where the dry powder sits and where opportunities are in the market and where you have conviction. And it works when you can kind of put that Venn diagram together and find the middle. And right now they're kind of dislocated. So I do think there's money on the sidelines. I think once 
you know, we hit a couple of these key, like again, when values are really kind of in the poor real estate universe seeing to hit the bottom. And when you see some momentum and some signs, I do think capital will return pretty quickly. But the other side of it is that, you know, at a high level, there's a lot of conversations that I think are getting reconsidered within pension plans as to their allocation and their targets between real estate and other asset classes. And I'm not sure that real estate wins in that. I don't think it loses materially, but I'm not sure it really wins. And what does that mean? It might mean that for some institutions, they decide to kind of hold steady or even cut back their allocations to real estate by a couple points for the next few years, or or particularly when interest rates stay high and credit's a really attractive alternative. So I do think that while we don't have a liquidity crisis, I don't think we're going to necessarily expect to see the same robust capital flows into real estate as an asset class that we did in the last cycle. Because again, part of what we were benefiting from was we were the yield generator, right? We were were offering growth and income in a world where it was really hard to get income from debt, right? And other strategies. So real estate played very well in that environment and benefited materially from that low interest rate environment. We don't get quite the same favored nation status in a higher interest rate environment. Would that return if industries come off and we get into the next cycle? It's does it just be a temporary? Yeah, I think it's temporary. And again, I don't think it's dire, but I think on the margin, it's going to be kind of a headwind as opposed to a tailwind for us. You don't need you know too many large institutions to you know put purchasing development on pause to have a major effect on the real estate market because you're talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars that is just no longer active. Right, the market feels that, and you only need a slight liquidity crunch to to put uh, a bit of a dark cloud over as a real estate practitioner. So the idea of stay alive till till twenty twenty five. I know we keep getting getting back to this. For you personally, what does that mean? Like for you to get through twenty twenty five with the least scars, uh, what does that mean for you? I think it means two things. Number one, it just means just head down, blocking and tackling, doing everything we can to drive occupancy in the assets that we own today. Right. And position those assets for the present. Right. And, the you know, the go forward. Right. You have to be competitive and it is a knife fight. And, and I think that's true. We're seeing pressure in multifamily. You know, we're seeing it across the board. And as you said, you know, it's interesting because I mean, if you look forward a bit, maybe that's part of staying alive to 25. The development pipeline, the supply, that equation is going to shift. But right now there is supply. It is being completed. It was started in the last cycle. And there's some of that still working through the system. So I think one is just being really aggressive to keep your properties leased and to think about how to make sure they're positioned to be first in line, not last in line when there's demand in the market. Number two is absolutely capital structure. You know, what can you do to alleviate liquidity issues or just, you know, have time with lenders? So there's a lot of focus on capital structure, definitely part of staying alive. And I think also keeping morale up, you know, I take an internal lens to that question as well. I think it's hard to be a very transactional business, whether that's developing, buying, leasing, selling, raising money. I mean, it's just we are a transactional business and company and people are wired to consider success equal to or related to, you know, the the velocity of transactions. So, you know, how you keep people motivated, how you kind of take that time to build strategy and think in other ways it's less transactional but really important to the business and motivates people i'd say that's also a big part of just staying alive yeah, saying no can be very profitable but it doesn't feel like a win like we're, we're here to do deals <laughs> and that's tough on the morale 
It's tough on morale. I mean, it's one thing to, to do that. And if you think about this, I mean, it's really been three years already. And I think we went through the COVID and people felt like we we're coming out of it. And then you kind of get hit with this the supply chain, interest rates, inflation, Ukraine. I mean, now we've got Hamas. I mean, it's just, it's kind of one thing after another. And all that weighs on people, right? It weighs on us all, I'm sure, as just as humans. And it weighs on our industry. It weighs on our business. So you got to put in perspective. And, and we are asking a lot of people right now and have to recognize that a lot of people have, you know, a lot of different kind of stress points and experiences in their life, right? So a lot. Be patient. We'll get through this. Be patient. Stay together. You've got great perspective, you know, with the global investment in this inflationary environment is global. It's happening all over the world, but everybody's at different cycles. Maybe just talk about what your experiences are, the different cycles and why, and what you're kind of, what you're anticipating bringing it back to the Canadian context. So the different geographies? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd say what's interesting, well, I don't know if it's interesting, but well, it is, but maybe obvious too, but, um, you know, is that Asia is probably the most disconnected from what is impacting Europe and North America, meaning it's got, I mean, China's a huge question mark, obviously. Do you have any Chinese exposure? Very little, no. But we have a significant business in Asia, but it is 80% Japan. And then South Korea, a little bit in Hong Kong and a little bit in Australia. But we're very Japan-focused. So what I would say is that, I mean, obviously the whole Japan economy works a, a little differently and I'm not the best one to get into that. But what I would say is that also from a property perspective, you know, in, in Tokyo and major cities in Asia, they didn't actually have the same return to office headwinds and challenges, right? They really never left the office. Um, so office is performing very well. It's a very different set of circumstances. And just again, from an investor perspective and from a capital flows perspective, I'd say the investor sentiment hasn't materially shifted either toward or away from, you know, Asia as a whole. It's been pretty consistent. So if you liked it before, you like it now. If you didn't like it, you didn't like it, but it's kind of on its own. The connections between what's going on in North America, and I put both the U.S. and Canada into that. And then Europe, I'd say, are definitely more tightly aligned. We're, we have many more of the same experiences for obvious reasons. Europe's a little closer to the distress of what's going on not only now in Russia, Ukraine, but obviously Israel and, um, yeah, we won't even go into that. The geopolitical stresses are just closer to home. For the geopolitical, thank you for saying that more eloquently, yes. The geopolitical, you know, it is really next door. So that is having a greater impact on Europe. And I think our view is that there will be a greater probably impact on recession and, you know, stresses to the economy, but then also, you know, opportunities that come with that. Quickly on, on U.S. versus Canada, what I'd say is, you know, usually what I'd say is Canada really follows the U.S. in many ways. So I think if you look to the U.S., you can really get some good insights as to kind of where Canada is headed. That's just kind of the way that markets tend to work. You know, right now, um, I, there's a lot more volatility, as we were talking about before, in the U.S. market. You know, I actually think Canada is very well positioned, again, relative. And, and there was a panel on it earlier today at this conference where someone was advocating really for Canada being arguably the best positioned country of the, you know, the G7 at least, and why. Um, but immigration is part of that. Uh, technology uh, and innovation is part of that. You know, the banking system is part of that. But there's a really a lot of resilience to the 
Canadian economy, particularly compared to the U.S., that um, I think is going to be a real differentiator for the markets um, over the cycle. So typically what Canada offers to global investment is not everything you you said, but typically yield, like outsized returns is not part of that. How do you think Canada will stack up on what is usually a weaker category for us, which is, you know, just outsized returns um, as compared to the U.S. over the next year? But yeah, no, it's a good question. And I do think it's, it, I mean, that is a challenge. And there's also, when you talk about the foreign flows of capital, you have to layer in like FX and taxes. And there's a lot of structuring that goes into international investing. And not, not to get into details, I'm not versed on, but I think there's been some shifts lately in some of that regulation that has shifted the attractiveness of foreign capital um, that, used to kind of benefit Canada over the U.S. from a leakage perspective of like, what is a cost to invest into the market? And it's actually looking like the U.S. becomes a little bit advantageous to Canada. So part of how Canada also would attract foreign capital is because on a net basis, when you think about returning that capital on a global basis, there wasn't as much leakage, right? So I do think that's a, you know, something that you got to factor in when you're thinking about the global capital flows. You know, I think that Canada is generally a market that is better at providing lower risk adjusted returns than the outsized returns, but that doesn't mean it's a bad place to invest because I actually think relative to the risk, it's quite attractive, doesn't have, again, because it doesn't have the same volatility, it just doesn't have the same outsized opportunities, I would argue, right? But where Canada tends to do a very good job developing the yield in that outsized return is actually with construction and development. It's a market that people build in. And it doesn't create your yield out of the block, but it does It does when you're done. And if you haven't heard, we actually need more housing in Canada. Well, and you're not alone, right? <laughs> but yes, you do. And especially with immigration, right? It's your positive and it does so much to drive demand for real estate and obviously the, the economy more broadly. It's such a positive and a necessary part, but obviously it's it's also very much a challenge to house those people. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, we're, we don't have any time to get into that today, but we'll save tax structuring for the next one too. Yeah. Next time, third appearance. Yeah. Please explain. One last question, I think just to end, Amy, um, like what, what are you most excited for going into 2024 and beyond? Well, I guess, I mean, the, to me, the excitement and the opportunity is to, I think it's going to be a great vintage, if you will, to be an investor. Um, I'm excited to get to kind of be back really being strategic and thoughtful about how you deploy capital. I do think it's going to be a market where you have to be really selective at an asset level. And, you know, we, we kind of went through a period where the rising tide kind of lifted all boats and that tide receded. So you have to be really thoughtful. But I think to me, the opportunity and what I'm excited about is that allows managers candidly to be able to differentiate themselves a bit more. People are going to do things a little differently. And again, not just kind of by market or by property type, but actually by asset. How do you try to think about being a winner in that game, right? And um, again, we don't have time for it, but we're actually using AI and technology a lot more to help us just be another voice in the room of market selection with a go-forward lens. So I think really the excitement to me is how do we, we've taken a pause, we've had time to really think about our convictions and our strategies. The fun part is getting back to the execution and how do we do that in a, in a world that allows you to be a bit more differentiated and how do we do it well? 
Well, stay tuned to the next episode with Amy Price on AI use in real estate. I threw that one in. Yeah, that came up right at the end. <laughs> that's, the, that's the hanger for the next one, okay? I'd like to thank First National for powering the podcast. Uh, thank to our sponsors of the speaker video series, Dow Vukovic, M. Allen Porio, and Turner Townsend. Uh, a reminder to our listeners to subscribe, rate, and review if you like what you're listening to. And uh, again, thanks to Amy for coming on. really appreciate you taking the time. Out of a busy day. You started first thing this morning, yeah. Thank you, ANA. It's the three A's. Three A's, that's right. Amy, Aaron, and Adam signing off. Welcome to the after show where we talk about the conversation we just had with Amy Price of Bentel Green Oak. Aaron's uh, pause there is because that was our fourth podcast of the day. And I think his brain is feeling it. Oh yeah, I'm out. I also have a five-week-old baby at home, which doesn't help my uh, my sleep Cliffhanger, the AI at the end. <laughs> God damn it, Amy. I wish we had 10 more minutes there. Well, we did, but that's just not nice, right? Well, especially if she's got sharing duties, probably is. Oh, yeah. She was on the stage at 8 a.m. this morning, right? Standing in front of 3,000 people. So, yeah. But the idea that, I mean, well, I guess that's how it happens. That, that, you know, if AI has a prominent voice at the table of investment decisions and that will grow over time. You know what? I'm actually kind of embarrassed to say that we haven't had a guest on to really dive into the impact of AI on real estate. So if you are out there and you think you're an expert, come on over, send us an email. Several guests today have all brought up the same thing. Nobody wants core assets anymore. And is it just because the interest rates are almost... I guess it's the expectation of value. It's got, that, that's the answer, right? It's Yeah, it's just that you're, you're flat to uh, a flat or negative yield. The interest rate, so five-year government of Canada bond is 4%, somewhere around there, like plus or minus, what, 30 basis points. Spreads are 170 to 180. So your interest rate, like really good interest rate for the best borrowers and the best assets and the best location is north of 5.5%. And it's listed for a five cap. The math just does not make sense. Negative leverage on an industrial asset that already has $18 rents and... For a 10-year term lease, right? Like you're not realizing any return for a decade. That doesn't make sense. Sell it for a six and three-quarter cap and there'll be buyers. As we sit here today, bond yields are on the decline. So maybe just buyer expectations never budge, but finance gets back into a position to make their expectations real. I don't know how you get that back on track. I think I've said this already in one of the recordings we've done today, and, and I will I will absolutely state it again because we've heard it now. And this I'm, it's funny for those listening that maybe don't attend these forums, they take on a, a tone, right? And as you meander through the day, and you talk to people during podcasts, you talk to people in between podcasts, you hopefully his, listen to a, a couple speakers if we get a chance. And there's these themes you pick up on. So one of the themes I picked up on is that, you know, survive to 25, for heaven's sakes, we've said it so many times already. Part of that also is that interest rates are coming down. Benjamin Tall was up there this morning saying the overnight rate's coming down 200 basis points. And so that means prime is coming down from the 7.2 that it is today to five and a quarter, let's say. There's a theme and a, a hope that that means that bond yields are coming down by 200 basis points. And I, I, I'm going to you know, be the bearer of bad news, but I think that the prime coming down by 200 basis points is already priced into the yield on Government of Canada bonds. Maybe that's what happened in the last couple of weeks as the market anticipated this happening. Right. Because remember, the bond traders are already, they're thinking about what's going on in the next 6, 12, 18 months. That's how those bond trades. And so they're all going, yes, Benjamin's right. It is going to come down. So bond yields should be at 4% to mark in and to accept that that is where prime is going to end up. So if you're hoping for a 2% 10-year government of Canada bond in the next 
and that's how we're going to survive to 2025. <laughs> I, I just don't think that's happening. I, I think we're going to be there in 2025. Benjamin Tall's probably right. Government of Canada bonds come down. There's been a recession. They've got to loosen their monetary policy. They've got to release some of the stranglehold they've got on mortgage costs and capital costs. And 10-year Government of Canada bonds are 4%. If that's the new normal, though. Well, go for a, go to a timeline that goes back beyond the global financial crisis and you would see them be very normal. Yeah, sorry, I, I did that. I did that. Yeah, we went back. And the last time Prime kind of hovered around 5% was 2006, 2007. It went up in 2008 during the, the global financial crisis, came back down to 2000 into, to 5%. And then it slowly meandered all the way down over the next sort of 10, 12 years. Back in 2006, 2007, when Prime was flat around 5 Government of Canada bond was 4%. And that was normal. And I mean, obviously cap rates were, were higher then, but the market was healthy and doing well and people are making money. Not like more recent memory where you could just buy an asset, do nothing. And then all of a sudden you're driving a Bugatti, but. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, and you know, talk about the people not wanting core assets or the core assets not penciling out. And, and so the reality is the cracks perhaps that Amy kind of alluded to is that the owners of those assets or the people that are looking to buy those assets or sell those assets or whatever, are, have to still come to the realization that we might be in already, I mean, saving except for a whole bunch of other noise, the new interest rate norm. This band of 4% 10-year bonds is the next cycle, is where we're going to start the next cycle. And so a six and a quarter cap or six and three quarter cap for a really good industrial asset is what it's worth. And so how long does it take for that guy that's sitting there trying to think it's worth 5% take for him to get to, oh, wait, it's, it's actually worth whatever it is on a six and three quarter cap. But interesting though, I will admit that the idea of core being less desirable, um, that concept is relatively new to me. I've only been hearing that more recently. Am I alone in that or is that? Uh... No, me too. Yeah, well, that's two guests today that have said it and she was referencing a panel of major investors that that was their theme. She runs $80 billion of real estate. So I think she knows a little bit about it. Probably has some visibility in the matter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she brought up office failures as well. How does that play out in Canada? Like, what, what are you envisioning of the player in Canada? I mean, it's obviously the banks here are larger and concentrated and theoretically able to withstand more body blows. And of course, then a lot of the offices are also institutionally owned, but is that enough to save major negative uh, outcomes? Well, I, I mean, it's like catching a falling knife. Like, I, like, okay, play this game. Imaginary office, it's 75% lease today on all leases that were signed up for the most part pre-COVID, during COVID even, average net rents in the building are 35 bucks, okay? Whatever, 25% vacancy, 35 bucks net rents. In five years from now, what's the vacancy, what's the net rent in that building? Well, and when is their debt mature too, is the other, of course, big part of that, yeah. Well, I mean, forget like forget that. Just just tell me what it, tell me what the, what's the net rent and what's the vacancy of that office building? Brand, downtown, urban center, whatever, right? Like, you have no idea. That's the point. Zero idea. Your exit is completely opaque. Could be 15 bucks net rents, could be 70% vacancy, could be 45 bucks net rent. Like, I mean, who knows, right? There's zero visibility. So where's it going? Yeah, that's exactly it. I, my instinct is it's probably flat, <laughs> but that's the lazy way of underwriting. Just assume it's the same. <laughs> but I think that that's the problem, right? Yeah. And we don't have the answers. So maybe uh, that's where we'll wrap it up until we'll come back when we do have the answers. <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody for listening to the very end. And this concludes our uh, day one Toronto Real Estate Forum. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.